This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, a conversation with Professor Sir Lewis Ritchie. I felt that the constraint uh, going forward for best use of computers or IT would not be technical. I felt it would be cultural constraint. So I don't believe in doing reviews behind closed doors. So I, I believe in trying to take people with me. So I'm in a decent place of and I'm there. I'll see if we can then go out for a sale uh, once these COVID times and restrictions are, are passed. Hello, you are very welcome to podcast number 20 from the Scottish National Users Group. I'm Andrew McElhinney, a GP in NHS Forth Valley. Now today, we have a brilliant episode for you and a very special guest. Professor Sir Lewis Ritchie has played a unique role in shaping the computerisation of Scottish primary care. Having written a book in the 1980s on computers in primary care, he chaired the Electronic Clinical Communications Implementation Group, he carried out a couple of reviews of the GPASS system, helped set up the Primary Care Clinical Informatics Unit at Aberdeen University, and has encouraged the Scottish Government to set up a national data and intelligence reporting service for primary care, which is still developing. And as we're going to hear, he has also been Director of Public Health in Grampian and been deeply involved in many really significant public health initiatives, including SIGN Guidelines on Management and Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, the Meningococcal C Immunisation Programme, NHS 24, as well as doing important reviews of out-of-hours services throughout Scotland. So, Professor Sir Lewis Ritchie, thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. You're very welcome, Andrew. I'm sure you're still keeping as busy as ever. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I think that uh, we all are, Andrew, right now, I think, in one way or another. Um, and, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, and it's been, I've been very privileged to see many, many colleagues uh, uh, working hard to, uh, to vanquish uh, the COVID uh, scourge that's uh, amongst us, you know, working hard to treat the public, working hard uh, now to vaccinate the public as quickly as possible, you know, um, and doing so while fatigued uh, and under great pressure. So it, it, it's been a privilege to work alongside colleagues in this mighty endeavour. You've been many things. You've been a GP, an academic, you're still the James Mackenzie Professor of General Practice in Aberdeen University, and you've also been the Director of Public Health in Grampian. Which of these jobs would you say you've enjoyed the most? Hey, I, I wouldn't hesitate for a, for a moment uh, in that. Um, uh, I served with Peter Head uh, at the Health Centre and Community Hospital uh, for 37 years. Uh, initially as a trainee and then a partner and then latterly in the last five years uh, as an associate, uh, part-time, very part-time associate in my practice. Um, and uh, it's the, uh, the length uh, of service uh, 
um, and the nature um, of the people of Peterhead, both those who receive service and and my colleagues who deliver that service, it's it's given me the most uh, satisfaction. Uh, whether it is been the work of my life that's made the biggest impact is another matter. That's for other people to decide. Because as you say, I've I've uh, had my fingers in many professional pies uh, over the years. Indeed. And going back to Peterhead, I remember hearing you talk about the lifeboats there um, in the past and the significance that they had for people there and, and for yourself. Can you tell us a bit about that? I, I, I can certainly do that. Uh, um, my grandfather in Fraserburgh, although I worked in Peterhead, my home was in Fraserburgh, um, and I was brought up in the harbour area of Fraserburgh near the lifeboat station, and my uh, maternal grandfather was a lifeboatman, and indeed he, he received a, an award in 1941. But uh, uh, when in these days, in the olden days, lifeboat crew were called out by maroons, rockets, two rockets, and that was a way of summoning volunteers to the lifeboat station. That was very, very uh, memorable for me as a child growing up in Fraserburgh. Uh, in 2010, I was asked to give the Mackenzie Lecture of RCGP UK, and uh, I, one of my uh, interests has been promoting clinical leadership. Um, and uh, I decided that the theme of my lecture should be on leadership. Um, and I framed it against the values of the lifeboat service. Uh, during you know, uh, selflessness, courage, etc., etc. Um, and uh, so I used that as my back cloth, if you like. And as part of that, I did some research uh, clearly into the RNLI. I, did, I discovered that the former lifeboat, Julia uh, uh, Park Barry of Glasgow, which served Peterhead between 1939 and 1969, uh, was in a very bad shape and up for sale in Northern Ireland. So I decided to, I was coming to the end of my partnership in Peterhead, so I decided to put an offer in to buy the boat with a, with a chance to restore it. It has a very significant history, that lifeboat, because it, it was a gold medal winning lifeboat, or an LI medal uh, lifeboat winner, first time for more than 100 years, uh, and indeed was almost the only gold medal winner in Scotland until 1997, when the Larwick lifeboat uh, also received a gold medal in the 20th century. So, um, to cut a long story short, uh, for several years, uh, the boat lay under cover in, in Peter End Harbour, uh, and then one local businessman by the name of Charles Ritchie, the late Charles Ritchie, no relation, I may say, uh, he, he, uh, he offered to, to restore the boat, um, and uh, magnificently, uh, his company uh, restored the boat, and it's now in a special building in the former exercise yard of uh, HM Prison Peterhead. Ah. And so here we have uh, the, the contrast of uh, you know, a community looking after and trying to rehabilitate uh, prisoners, uh, and on the other hand, 
help with courage and try to help those uh, in need at sea. So it's it's lovely to see it there in that building. I, and I had a great privilege of opening it uh, in June uh, 2019. I, I also have my own lifeboat, of course, uh, which you, you also know about, Andrew. Uh, the Douglas Curry, which is actually, uh, when I was a junior partner in Glasgow, we'll never sail again. Uh, my uh, present lifeboat is in present the marina, and uh, she didn't win any medals, but she served Macduff uh, and Fraserburgh, which is why I was able to acquire her. Uh, and uh, she sits there in present the marina in original condition, other than her electronics, which she uh, uh, I'm buying up to date. <laughs> so, so if anybody's in Fraserburgh and I'm there, I'll see if we can then go out for a sale uh, once these COVID times and restrictions are, are, are passed. <laughs> that would be super. Thinking about technology and GPIT, which our listeners are interested in, you've seen a lot of changes in the past 20 years. And I was just fascinated to think, looking forward, uh, do you think GP computing will change more in the next 20 years than it has done in the last 20? Uh, yes, I do, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but I suppose in terms of, of um, a, when I was at university doing my chemistry degree, I decided to do computing science, um, and uh, I then went on to do unexpectedly, I didn't, I didn't plan to do medicine, and then uh, I trained in both public health as well as general practice, as you've alluded to. Uh, but I, I, I did some qualifications in, in computing science as well, and wrote a book about the, the uh, prospects of GP computers, uh, computers in primary care, it was called, uh, back in 1984. It's a long time ago. Uh, and then uh, I established with colleagues um, the uh, information, the informatics unit, primary care clinical informatics unit at the University of Aberdeen, which sought to uh, pull down information that was being collected um, from uh, volunteer GPAS practices in Scotland. And that, in its heyday, more than half of the practices in Scotland were voluntarily contributing to this. Uh, and we published a number of papers and obviously fed back reports to practices. Um, I then get got involved in a review of GPAS, which was at the time deemed to be losing functionality would be one way of putting it. And that's when uh, uh, it, it lasted the course for another 10 years until just over 10 years ago when of course it began to be replaced by primarily EMIS and Vision, of course, which most people will know about. And as you again alluded to, Andrew, uh, there's clearly um, you know, a, a replenishment uh, of GP uh, IT underway in Scotland, which I am not directly involved in, but I am interested in involved in that. And uh, I advise the Scottish Government, as you're aware, and uh, I was particularly keen that the government uh, looked at data and intelligence from, prim from primary care. Um, and indeed, I recommended when GPAS was finishing that the government establish a national uh, data extraction system, which uh, takes the form of SPIRE. I won't talk about SPIRE, though, other than to say in terms of what I think the prospects are yeah. for uh, data and intelligence going forward. So I declared an interest 
Uh, I've certainly been very supportive of the Premier Care Directorate and the Government of establishing a specific data and intelligence function, which it now has. And again, I'm privileged to chair uh, the Premier Care Data and Intelligence Oversight Group, or network as it's sometimes called, and that will be uh, that will be trying to pursue in a much more systematic way the best uh, information that we can get uh, in a safe and secure way with the ownership of the profession in Scotland. It will go beyond general practice, the other clinical activity within primary care, and in due course, uh, I think social care uh, should be caught up in this as well. And of course, we've just had the the Feely Review on Social Care in Scotland. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, what will happen to IT, if you like, so Ian Thompson, you mentioned, yes. he's, going to, he's going to be leading a subgroup looking at, at technical, best technical extraction, um, and that will be also about securing uh, data and maintaining confidentiality. There'll be another group that will actually decide uh, what data and intelligence we really need at national level, regional level, local level, um, again with ownership. Uh, a specific group will be looking at uh, improving data quality, not just you know, a group which looks at giving out the right codes, but actually looks at data quality improvement in general practice. And a fourth group uh, will be looking looking at governance, uh, communications, uh, and trust, um, uh, and ethics, which, in other words, something that will hopefully uh, retain, uh, develop, maintain, retain, promote uh, the trust uh, of the public and indeed the profession uh, of data, uh, uh, best use of data and intelligence uh, for the Scottish people. It will also, I hope, help uh, all clinical colleagues working in primary care and admin support staff uh, to get a better handle uh, on on the, the daily uh, activity in general practice and primary care. Uh, in other words, it, it, it would be seen to be uh, not just a tool to be entering data, but also a tool to inform um, daily practice and beyond. Um, I also think that, that uh, it's on the IT side, on the boxes and wires, we'll be moving to a cloud-based system. And uh, I foresee the day that um, uh, these systems uh, will be uh, set up to actually be dynamic systems. And by that, I mean these databases will not just wait for uh, questions to be asked of them, which is, is a, in, a sense, in essence, a passive database, but actually computers, artificial intelligence, they will be working on their own questions um, uh, and asking questions of the data set, uh, uh, you know, having been prompted uh, in a priority area uh, by clearly, uh, you know, the data and intelligence needs of Scotland. So, uh, you know, that's, it sounds a bit sort of big, you know, 1984-ish, uh, um, uh -huh. <laughs> but, but I think it will come, and it'll, it won't be dramatic, but uh, it, it, it will be a way of getting a intelligence uh, on matters that before have waited for specific questions to be asked. 
Uh, and while these will still be necessary, I think there will be a dynamic self-delegation, if you like, of databases. Yes, and it is exciting to think of all the possibilities. I hope that GPs and doctors won't ever become obsolete. Um, I have heard it said that people working collaboratively with technology are more effective than either people or technology alone. Uh, well, absolutely. See, when I did write my, uh, my book, it, it clearly was a look to uh, the future. And, uh, you know, the uh, hindsight's the best teacher, of course, but I, I had to arm myself with a crystal ball. <laughs> and I, I did predict, you know, at the time, a 10 megabyte hard disk was cutting edge. The, and, and it was very expensive as well. You know, a, um, <laughs> it would have been ten thousand pounds at today's prices, probably. So, uh, you know, what you can get in a watch now uh, is infinitely more powerful than what I had in my desk to begin with in, in Peterhead. But, yeah. uh, but the, what I I did say to return to your immediate point, uh, Andrew, is that uh, I felt that the constraint uh, going forward for best use of computers or IT would not be technical uh, difficulties or technical constraints is probably the better word. I felt it would be cultural constraints, you know, uh, how humans interact uh, uh, with computers. And uh, uh, that, I think, has been the major impediment or broke factor uh, in terms of what we've been able to do up until now in relation to best use of, of data and intelligence within general practice and primary care. Uh, and if it's only done in a piecemeal way, uh, then uh, you know, it, it, it's not great. So I'm, I'm hoping that the new structures we've, we've tried to set up here will be able to do something much more systematic in Scotland certainly to avoid a postcode lottery in terms of data and intelligence um, and hopefully we'll be able to bring it to a level uh, that we haven't experienced before uh, clearly with the full buy-in of colleagues throughout Scotland. Yeah and these are all things that SNUG members would be very keen to be involved with and to help with uh, going forward so, so do keep us in the loop. I, well, I, absolutely, uh, uh, certainly, in terms of working out the membership of the various, well, there are really subgroups uh, that I've just described, these four subgroups. Yeah. So be assured, be assured we will be seeking engagement from colleagues because, of course, ownership uh, is, is key in all of this going forward. Yeah. So, obviously, just as we come to, to finish off, you've shared an enormous number of influential groups over the years. I've just been looking at some of them. Uh, sign, cardiovascular guidance, meningitis C, pneumococcal, flu immunization, ECI, NHS 24. There's, there's just a massive list. And I was interested, um, which of all these groups and reviews do you think has had the biggest uh, effect at the end of the day? Uh, well, I think... You know, my work on sign, cardiovascular disease has always been my, uh, my most, uh, my highest clinical interest. Uh, and preventing it, uh, as well as managing it. Um, and uh, certainly, um, 
I brought cost effectiveness to the sign process when I did my original sign guideline on uh, primary prevention of uh, coronary heart disease. That's 20 years or so ago. So in terms of impact, so what we were saying then was a substantial number of, of Scots, and indeed beyond Scotland, because of course signs reaches beyond that, uh, deserves, uh, deserved uh, a better, um, um, clearly, uh, outcome. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I've moved sign along to not only clinical effectiveness, but cost effectiveness too. So I hope that has saved a number of lives uh, and also clearly uh, diminished the risk of further uh, signal episodes and further episodes of cardiovascular disease. Uh, so well, that might be the biggest impact. In terms of one of the, the reviews that I did, and indeed uh, I led the introduction of the meningococcal C vaccine in Scotland, and until that vaccine became available, 2030, young people in Scotland died or, or were very severely handicapped by men's C infections. So I got, I got a lot of satisfaction out of helping with that. Again, that was 20 years ago. Well, recently I was involved in the uh, early days of NHS 24. And uh, I, I, I wouldn't have long enough to tell you about that, uh, <laughs> Andrew, but uh, that was one of my, uh, my biggest uh, um, career challenges, uh, you know, um, trying to do my best uh, for a new organization that was trying to find its feet and which initially was very controversial. And I spent 10 years on that, um, and uh, so I I, I well remember that. Uh, more, more recently, uh, my out of hours review um, in 2015, uh, I deliberately chose the, the, the title myself, pulling together, quoting urgent care in Scotland. Um, and what I basically said was that to transform urgent care in Scotland, sorry, what I, what I said in that report is we should think anew about 24-7 urgent care in Scotland. And out of that, I have been involved in a, a number of other reviews. Uh, you know, I've been looking at Greater Glasgow and Clyde out of ours most recently. A review of Sky, in Sky uh, out of ours, a Sky Locality in Southwest Ross, and also a review of uh, the finances of Tayside. Now, I have several qualifications, as you know, Andrew, but, but I don't have any financial uh, qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, I said there, Andrew, that the, at the outset of that particular review, um, uh, I am not just going to concentrate on money here. I'm going to meet people. <laughs> so one of the features of my reviews, if I'm asked to do reviews in, in, in usually complex areas or controversial areas, is meeting people, colleagues, uh, just to hear what they feel about things. Um, so I don't believe in doing reviews in behind closed doors. Uh, so I, I believe in trying to take people with me uh, and trying to respect as many views as I can along the way. Yeah. So just to finish off with, we were discussing the recording of COVID-19 vaccinations in the last podcast and how all the information will flow into the National Clinical Data Store. Could you see this becoming the single 
central source of vaccination information for everyone in Scotland? Yes, uh, again, uh, I never would have done any review through without uh, writing up a report and making recommendations. Uh, when I did the Men's C programme, which was 1999 to 2001, uh, I uh, had a list of lessons to be learned for future vaccine programmes. Um, and the most potent one was the establishment of a lifelong immunisation record. That, uh, I then repeated that when I led the swine flu programme uh, 10 years ago, um, and, but it didn't quite come to pass. I think with the COVID-19, there will be legacy issues around the COVID-19 vaccination programme, and one of that, I strongly believe, will be uh, a lifelong immunisation record. So that basically, irrespective of where immunizations are given, the locus of delivery, as there are, as you well know, across Scotland right now, a myriad of models of provision of the COVID vaccine as it as it uh, as it pans out. Uh, but, but also uh, the ability of clinicians to determine the immunization status uh, when needing to do so under a clinical requirement. Uh, so that uh, you would be, uh, your, your, in effect, your lifelong record would be available throughout the system with appropriate access uh, protections, but also the power of the data behind that. And indeed, I'm actually involved in a study called the E2 study, that's E-A-V-E-2 study, which is actually looking at uh, the COVID, uh, COVID and COVID vaccination in Scotland right now. So we're beginning to get some publications out. So uh, it will be the power not only to give best clinical care, to call people up uh, appropriately as required for vaccination, but also to facilitate the research and best practice. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be super, and. Uh, I guess we'll all uh, maybe need a printout of our vaccine record before we can go on holidays in the future. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping people will not have to start sort of turning up with their GPs to, to ask for a you know um, a vaccine line, as it were. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I heard somebody mention that on the radio uh, at the weekend. So, Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. On behalf of Snug, I want to thank you for all the work you've done for us and the people of Scotland over many years. You're very kind, Andrew, and uh, can I just thank again my colleagues for all their mighty endeavours at this time. Thank you. What an absolute privilege it was to speak to Sir Lewis, and what an amazing overview of his incredibly productive and varied career he gave us. And... Doesn't a sail in Peterhead sound absolutely brilliant? In fact, a sail anywhere sounds great just now. I've put some links in the podcast notes so that you can read a bit more about some of the things that were mentioned, including the Julia Park Barry of Glasgow lifeboat on display at Peterhead Prison Museum, some details of the Eve 2 study, and if you want to be inspired and challenged to do more with your life, just have a look at the CV for Sir Lewis. And imagine how much work it took to do any single one of those things. The Snug Podcast is available on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or obviously from however you found us. Do have a listen to some of the other episodes. Send us in some comments on Twitter, Facebook, email, or 
you could just write us a letter. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye for now.